Good morning. At this point, uh, I think we'd like to dismiss the children, the elementary age children, to go downstairs. These really tall microphones. Move it over here. All right, good morning. How is everybody? Good? Awesome. Gabe's awesome. If anyone's interested, that's Gabe. He's, uh, he's like my favorite person when I'm preaching because he's always very affirming and saying amen uh, and really engaged. So he's, yeah, I've got like a direct line to you, Gabe. Thank you. So good morning. Uh, again, my name is Tommy, and I'm going to be walking uh, all of us through some scripture this morning uh, as we continue through our journey in the book of Acts. Uh, my wife, uh, who's not here this morning, she was due to have our second child on March 17th, St. Patty's Day. We were really looking forward to having an Irish baby. Um, so when Robert asked me uh, to, to preach on April 8th, I was like, that's plenty of time. The baby's going to come out on the 17th. I'll have like three weeks to catch up on sleep. Uh, but then our baby girl, her name is Davy. she decided that she needed a little bit more time in the oven. So she came out last week. Uh, she's a week old at this point. Um, so I apologize ahead of time if I just spontaneously fall and take a nap right here. I'm really tired. I had, I had three, hour, three and a half hours of sleep last night. Um, and I know it's not a game, but I think I win. Um, or lose. It's usually lose. But, you know, I'm going to be optimistic about it because three and a half hours is a bad night of sleep. But it's an awesome nap. So I had a great, <laughs> awesome nap last night in the middle of the night. Joking aside, uh, I know every parent is probably very quick to acknowledge just how brutally exhausting having uh, a child is, but it really doesn't compare to the excitement and, and just the sheer joy of holding a tiny human being in your hands that you've waited for months to just be knit together inside uh, your womb. Um, it, it's just a pretty amazing experience. So it, it's been a great week, um, and even holding her at 3.30 in the morning and having her poop and pee all over me, it's, it's completely worth it because she is an amazing blessing. So um, that's what I want to leave you with, not my, you know, disgruntled uh, self. Um, so that's where I'm at. I'm a little raw this morning, so I apologize. Uh, this morning, as we're reading through Acts, we're, we're going we're gonna to pause in, in chapter 10, uh, and we're going to be camping out in verses 1 through 33. Uh, and the amazing narrative of the early church here, as we read through Acts, it brings us to a, a really profound turning point um, in the trajectory of where the gospel is going. And what I mean by that is, is up until this point, um, the church of Jesus Christ is, is made up entirely of Jewish people, entirely of Jewish people. So everybody who's in the church um, is there because of some sort of fr uh, close friend or relative, like, like you are related to all of the people in the church um, at this point. Um, not all of the Jews in Israel are Christian, uh, but all of the Christians are Jews. So I, I want to make that very clear, that all of the Christians in the church are Jewish. Um, the gospel, um, it hadn't been preached to, nor was it responded to by any non-Jew or, or Gentile. That's what the word Gentile means, it's just any person who's not a Jew. Um, and it wasn't because the original disciples hadn't gotten around to it yet. It wasn't like, okay, let's, uh, like, we'll get to that eventually. It, it was really because um, it was what they believed salvation uh, was meant to be. It, it, they, had, they had it in their minds that salvation was solely for the nation of Israel up until this point. Uh, but that's not what God had in mind. And, and what we see through a series of honestly pretty peculiar events in Acts 10 is, is really God's heart and desire uh, that people from all nations, tribes, and tongues would be able to experience the redemption of the cross. 
So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the text. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the sunshine. Um, thank you for new life in you. Um, God, that we get to experience and, and be blessed by each day. Lord, be with us this morning. Pray that you would speak through, through, through the words, um, through, through your word, God. We pray that we would have hearts to hear it, Lord, um, and ears to hear it, Lord. Pray that you would transform us um, and use it to, to grow us into your likeness, God. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start in uh, verse 1. It's going to be on the screen behind me, but if you want to open up your uh, Bible or your phone, Acts 10, uh, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with his household, with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So at the beginning of chapter 10, uh, we're introduced to this man named Cornelius. Uh, and if we can be honest, Cornelius probably doesn't stick out as, you know, the most notable person in the Bible. Like if we were to go family feud right now and we were to ask you, name a person from the Bible, Cornelius wouldn't make it as one of the answers in the game, right? They wouldn't be like, oh yeah, uh, Cornelius, right? You'd probably name 10, 20, 30 other people from the Bible before you get to this man named Cornelius. Um, he, he's kind of a background character. He only is really in one chapter of the Bible. But in this one chapter, in this single chapter, Cornelius's actions are going to play one of the most significant roles in bringing the gospel to many of us sitting here today. See, Luke, the author, he, he kind of slows down and he gives some very specific details about who Cornelius is. And, and these details are really important for us. Uh, first, we see that Cornelius is an officer in the Roman army. And so this means that just by nature, the nature of his political affiliation, uh, Jews are not going to like him. They're not going to like Cornelius. Uh, he's on the side of people that are oppressing Israel at this point, uh, and his position would have naturally put him at odds with any Jewish person he interacted with. So not only is he non-Jewish, he's, he's kind of like on the opposite team from the Jews. And second, Cornelius was a man who feared God. Um, this is another way that the Bible describes someone uh, who is reverent and obedient to the God of the Bible. He's described as devout, and his personal relationship with God was one that overflowed into the rest of his life. It says in verse 2 that he led his entire household, so this would include his wife, his children, his extended family, his servants, um, in this reverence and this worship of God, uh, which included generously giving money to needy people and constantly praying to God. You've got a person who is very devout, very religious, somebody who genuinely has a relationship with God. And before we really get going into the story, uh, we actually need to pause because this combination is unheard of. This combination is unheard of. Um, having a non-Jew, a person outside of the Jewish nation and, and lineage, um, a person who not only, like I mentioned, is, is not on the team of the Jews, but is on the opposing team, um, who is em employed by the opposing team, 
um, that kind of person having a relationship with God and living a devout lifestyle that would show evidence of gospel transformation and holiness is not just unheard of. It would actually be considered quite blasphemous at this point. And we'll read about this in the next chapter, that this idea of the gospel extending beyond Israel is met with some pretty serious tension and criticism, even among the Christian disciples. So this is very peculiar, this, this scenario, this combination um, of attributes in a single person. And the case of Cornelius is weird. It, it doesn't necessarily make sense, especially not to Peter um, and the other Christians at this time. Uh, it would be like kind of walking into like a large gravel pit, and all you see is just gravel, 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 and then you see a solitary red rose kind of like sprouting through the gravel, right? And you'd see it, and you'd be like, that makes no sense. How did that get there? This is very, very similar. Um, what we see is Cornelius, th this single sprouting sign of life in an otherwise spiritually dead nation, um, and God decides to communicate to him. God sends an angel uh, to Cornelius as he's praying and, and calls him by name to tell him that his prayers to God have been heard um, and that his selfless acts of generosity and service have been seen by God. And he gives him a very simple task. Um, he tells him to send people to go get a man named Simon who goes by the name Peter. And almost as if to, to confirm the fact that his relationship with God is, is legitimate and his reverence toward God is real, Cornelius, Cornelius unflinchingly obeys God. Uh, he dispatches two of his servants. He sends an armed escort with them and sends them to go find this man named Peter in this city by the water. And so the narrative continues uh, in, in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, bringing, uh, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So as the scene changes, right, we, we're looking at Cornelius now. It shifts to Peter, who's about 30 miles away in this busy trade city of Joppa. And Peter, uh, he climbs up onto a roof to pray, which is normal. It's not weird. Uh, at this point, they would have patios on the top of roofs. First time I read that, I was like, that's cool. You just... You know, climb up onto a rooftop to, to pray. Uh, but it turns out it's relatively common at that time. So he, he's, he's on the patio that's on the roof, and he's praying. And we're told that he actually gets hungry and wants to go get something to eat. And it's details like this where it's really affirmed to me that the Bible is not contrived. Um, because Peter is human. And I think if we can be honest, if you're anything like me, uh, when you settle down to pray, it seems like Every um, discomfort or distraction gets magnified by like a hundred, right? You think about like everything that's going on in your life and you're, I'm hungry. Oh, do I have to go? To, maybe I should go to the bathroom first, right? All of these distractions come to us. Um, and what, it, what a challenge it is for us to just sit down and to still our minds and our souls uh, to focus on God. That's not something that is unique to you. If that's something you struggle with, um, it doesn't mean that we should be discouraged beyond despair. It means that we're humans. We're operating in a fallen world, 
with imperfect bodies that are susceptible to discomfort and temptation, just like the Apostle Peter. And what I love is that God doesn't rebuke Peter um, because of his hunger. He's not like, what? how are you hungry? I'm trying to talk to you right now. Uh, why can't you just pray to me? No, he actually meets Peter literally where he's at by using an illustration that involves food to communicate the point that he's trying to make to Peter. In this vision that Peter is given from God, God illustrates um, his message with a vision of animals being lowered by a giant sheet by all four corners uh, coming down onto the earth. And then Peter hears an audible voice uh, which says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And so the illustration here might, for the, for the most of us, just kind of be weird. If we were given this vision, um, I don't think it would be terribly significant to us. It might just be a little bit confusing and odd. But to Peter, a person who is, he, who is very devout, he's a devout religious Jew who abides by a very strict kosher diet um, that was mandated by God himself that prohibited him from eating certain animals, when he's being told by God to now go and eat those once prohibited foods, this vision is pretty profound for Peter. And Peter had spent his entire life, along with every other Jewish person throughout the history of Israel, eating food that God had declared was clean and avoiding food that God had declared was unclean. And you can read about this in the book of Leviticus. And so now God is saying, things have changed, Peter, um, on a cosmic level. Go and eat anything. This is, this is huge, right? This isn't just like a minor little footnote. This is a huge shift in the trajectory for, for everything that Peter would understand to be the message of God up until this point. This is a radical notion for Peter. And so Peter's response is very much in line with his character as, as it's revealed to us as we read about him. Uh, but it's also very relatable to us. And he says, no way, God. No way am I going to eat that. I never have eaten anything unclean, and I never will. Right? Good job, Peter. You said no to God again. Now, Peter does this a lot. And what Peter's response reveals um, are really two major heart issues that God is going to help him walk through and work through. Um, first, what we see is an idolatry of religion. Um, and the second thing is a refusal to step out of his comfort zone. Those are the two things that God is going to walk Peter through in this text. And his idolatry of religion um, and his refusal to step out of his comfort zone. See, Peter holds the dietary laws um, in Leviticus so highly uh, that he clings to that law even when God himself, the person who establishes the law to begin with, calls him to let go. That shows uh, his priorities and where they rank. It exposes his theology of salvation, or in other words, uh, what he believes he must do in order to have a right relationship with God. See, in Peter's heart, there, there's still this lingering sense of the necessity of religious actions and traditions. Um, and before Jesus came to bridge the gap between God and man, the only way to access God uh, was through perfect obedience of the law, including these dietary restrictions. But the gospel, as it's delivered, um, is that Jesus came to fulfill the law with complete perfection like no other human in the history of, of the world or the Jewish nation has ever been able to do, thereby purchasing the ability for us to be able to have a relationship with God. So with Jesus, there is no more law. The law is not required to have a relationship with God. 
There is no doing good enough or, or following enough rules or having your ducks in a row uh, in order to have a relationship with God. The gospel is Jesus purchasing the power through his death on the cross, which we talked all about the last couple of weeks, um, in order that we would be able to have a relationship with God. And so this vision that God gives is declaring this very basic gospel truth and saying, Peter, you don't need to do that anymore. You don't need to follow those laws. You don't need to rely on them for your salvation. You are free from the law of sin and death. This is really good news for Peter. But Peter's response is, by no means, God. No, I don't want that. Which is a little crazy to us, right? Because we know the whole picture. And Peter, the, the apostle, right? He's an apostle. This isn't just some guy. This is a person who spent a lot of time with Jesus. He's an apostle. We've seen him throughout the book of Acts preaching to thousands of people, leading thousands of people to faith. Um, he's being gospeled right now. And if you've ever, if, if you've never heard that term being gospeled, it's like being, being spiritually schooled, right? In, in all the best ways, being, being made holy. Um, and, and for him, it's like having heart surgery being done uh, by the master surgeon who is God. He's being sharpened and he's being renewed in this moment. You see, we, we often, I'm going to switch gears slightly, but we often emphasize uh, the, the story of the prodigal son, right? It's one of the most common stories um, that, that is related to in our faith. Um, uh, the story of this boy who runs really far away, um, takes the money of his father and runs headlong into sin, but then eventually repents and comes back home and is welcomed with open arms by his father, right? That's the part of the story that gets talked about a lot. Uh, we often kind of forget about this, the older brother, right? The older brother who actually stays by the father's side the entire time. Um, he listens to the father, does everything that the father tells him to do, but is just as much, if not more, of a complete broken wreck than his little brother. The encouragement is that God lovingly shepherds all of us, whether, whether it's us running really far away in sin and trying to get away from God, um, or those of us who are nearby God but have really hard, sinful, um, cold, religious hearts. Both of those people get shepherded by the Father because he loves all of his children and meets each of us where we're at. So this is Peter. Peter is the older brother in this scenario. What happens, though? Does, does Peter get kicked off the team because of um, him saying no to God? Does God just lose his patience and find someone else who isn't finding their salvation in their religious duties and someone who isn't so stuck in their ways that um, they're, they're not comfortable to step out of them? No, God is as patient as he ever is. He, he, he re-rolls this vision three times to make Peter understand it so that he gets it isn't that amazing god's like all right again from the top let's roll this vision uh get that sheet coming down right i identified with this because i was that student in class who like needed to hear it multiple times to understand what was going on and this is what's happening for peter god loves him so much cares so much that he would understand this piece of the gospel that he he re-rolls this three times for peter but that's not it let's read on acts chapter 10 verse 17 now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit 
said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and, clo and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him <clears throat> and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to him, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or even to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you have sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and, and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in a house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Cornelius' search party eventually finds Peter. Um, they, can, they, they don't really have to convince Peter to come. God's like, these people uh, are coming for you, just go with them. So Peter does that. And Peter, when he gets there um, to Cornelius' house, Cornelius... Uh, he falls down at Peter's feet and begins worshiping him. But Peter grabs him up. He picks up and says, hey, um, stand up. I'm not God. I'm a man just like you are. Which, if you know Peter's story, then you know that this statement is one that's made uh, with a pretty deep and profound humility, right? As a person who kind of, uh, he, he tries so hard but gets it so wrong so often. And, and this should be an encouragement to us. Uh, but by the grace of God, he, he keeps getting lifted back up onto his feet and keeps walking in his journey of faith with God. And so I think at this moment when Cornelius has fallen at his feet, um, I think Peter starts putting it all together. And so this whole time he's been pondering the vision. He's trying to make sense of it. He's undoubtedly praying that God would give him discernment and make it more clear to him. Um, and God directs him to travel with these three strangers to meet with, with a Roman officer. So if I were Peter, I would, I would not be looking forward to the interaction that I'm about to have with someone who is in opposition um, to me and the gospel. But he meets this man, and, and instead of being met with hostility and opposition, he meets a man who crumbles at his feet and, and worships him. And I think it's at this moment that Peter realizes that oh, this, is, this is a doorway. This, this is not a brick wall that I'm, I'm, I'm facing right now. This is a doorway. Um, God has prepared a, a very special, he has ordained a moment for the gospel to now be preached and received for the first time outside of the nation of Israel. I think Peter puts it all together. Because Peter then goes ahead and tells them what God had been communicating through him, which is that um, the gospel does not discriminate between Jew or Gentile. The gospel does not discriminate between Jew or Gentile. Um, that just like 
food, which is the illustration that God used, uh, Peter has no right to distinguish people as clean or unclean now that Jesus' death on the cross has purchased the cleansing power for all. Does that make sense? Are you with me there? As you continue to read the, ch- the, the rest of the chapter and go into chapter 11, um, you'll, you'll start to see the gospel exploding out of the confines of Israel into the hearts and lives of the Gentiles. And we'll see Paul's conversion in a few chapters and his specific mission, his life mission, to bring the gospel to Gentiles further into Asia and beyond. But it all starts, if you were to rewind it back to this pivotal interaction between two very unlikely people. So what can we take away from all of this? Um, The two major players in this portion of scripture obviously are Cornelius and Peter. And I think depending on where you're at this morning, um, God might be using their stories to perform some heart surgery on you as well. See, Cornelius is a person, when we look at him, um, he is radically obedient to God, um, despite being given a relatively vague command. And so for us, it would be like, go to Boston, right? It would be like God telling us, go to Boston, find a guy named George who goes by Rocco. He's near the target in the south end, right? That's what this guy is being told. They're telling him that God's like, go find this guy named Peter. He's, he's with a tanner by the ocean, right? Very vague command. Um, but despite this, Cornelius' Cornelius's obedience, it shows us two things, Right? Um, It shows us, one, that he has a reverence for God, and two, he has a relationship with God. He obeys God because he understands the implication of receiving a command from the creator of the universe. That's reverence. So when God says, do this, he's like, okay. Right? There's no hesitation. There's no by no means. He understands who God is, and he he reveres him as his ultimate authority. And then he he um, is able to, to not only obey God, but then he is able to discern that this is a command that's actually from the creator of the universe. So for us, if we want to be used in mighty ways in helping God grow his kingdom here in the Pioneer Valley, uh, it has to start with a reverence and a worship for the holy God, um, but it also has to mean that we have a relationship with God so that we can discern his voice. That if we don't revere God as our ultimate authority, we simply just won't obey him if he calls us to do things that are outside of our comfort zone. We'll say, you know what, that's not really for me. Because we don't understand that it's the God of the universe commanding us to do something. So that's the reverence portion. Um, if we don't have a personal relationship with him that includes constant prayer like, like we see with Cornelius, um, then how can we even discern his voice to begin with, with all of the noise and the distractions that are bombarding us each day? day. Cornelius is someone who models this combination really well, a a reverence for God um, and and a relationship with God. So that's Cornelius. And then we get to Peter. Oh, Peter, Peter, he he gets gospel double time here. Um, He has this idolatry of religion exposed and then his his reluctance to step outside of his comfort zone really put to the test. Those are his two challenging moments. You have to remember um, that these are two things um, that have been deeply ingrained into Peter since he was a child. Um, The importance of the law and the uh, importance of Israel as a chosen chosen people that has been separated from the the nations around them. 
They've been ingrained into him ever since he was a child. And I think um, as we read the gospel, we might see the Pharisees, right? When the Pharisees come up, we might see them as really the, the only super religious ones um, who made an idol out of following the law. Uh, but really, the only difference between the Pharisees and the rest of the Jews is that the Pharisees were really good at following the law. Right? They weren't called out by God because they were wholly different than the other Jews. They were called out because they were leading the rest of the Jews in a religious idolatry of following the law. So it's, it's not like they were doing something completely different. They were just really good at doing what they shouldn't have been doing. And so that's why Jesus calls them out as the leaders of the rest of Israel. All of the other Jews strive to live according to the law as well. That would include Peter at this point. And with the strict religious upbringing included a very nationalistic sense of pride that would set them apart from all other non-Jews. Now, we don't have a lot of time to dive into this, um, but this is something that is actually ordained by God. So as we read through the formation of Israel in the Old Testament, what we see is God distinctly separating the nation of Israel from the nations around them. And it wasn't because Israel was any better or awesome or they had the best army or they had the coolest people or anything like that. It was because God chose them, period. He said, you are my people. I will choose you, not because of anything you've done or will do, but because I love you and you are mine. And so he separates them from the people around them. But even though he separates them, even from the very beginning, God's plan has always been to use Israel as the chosen people to reach all of the nations. And the exciting moment here um, is where God actually starts doing that, starting with this one person, Cornelius, the first person outside of the nation of Israel to receive the gospel. This is a fulfillment of, of one of the oldest prophecies in all of Scripture. So when I was uh, speaking with Robert, uh, Pastor Rob, Robert on the phone, and we were discussing this text, uh, he summed up Peter's transformation in this text um, as seeing how serious God is about the gospel simply being about Jesus. That, that's, what, that's what Peter is going through here, is that God is communicating him the importance that the gospel is just Jesus. So the gospel is not Jesus plus some dietary restrictions. Right? The gospel is, is not Jesus plus going to church on Sundays. It's not Jesus plus being a part of a Bible study. It's not Jesus plus reading your Bible plan on your phone app and keeping that streak alive. It's not Jesus plus not having sex before marriage. It's not Jesus plus tithing your money each month. Uh, month. The, the gospel of salvation is found in faith in Jesus Christ alone, period. That is the message that Peter is having made very clear to him using this illustration. And that salvation that Peter received, that we can receive, is through grace alone. Not any works, not anything that we have to do, uh, not any dietary restrictions or, or religious plan. It's through grace alone. And God tries telling this to Peter, and Peter's like, no. So God's like, no, you don't get it. Let's, let's go over this again. Again, he re-rolls that entire image. He does it three times until eventually it gets through to Peter that salvation is not Jesus plus his ability to keep kosher. And this is one of the key transformations in Peter's heart in this text. So that's round one for Peter, right? He, get, he gets a twofer. So that's one thing that God's working in his heart. But the other thing uh, is that God also calls him to step really far outside of his comfort zone. And Peter 
is very comfortable, like many of us, in his routine and his immediate community. But God calls him to step into unknown territory, to associate with people um, that he would never associate with in order that they might be reached for the gospel. And he does it. He does it. He spends a few days with Cornelius, which, which also would, would presumably lead to him eating non-kosher food for the first time as well. And for Peter, this is a huge step. For, for all of the church, it's actually a really huge step. And, and we're going to read all about that next week and all of the drama that unfolds because of Peter doing what he's doing here. But Peter, like Cornelius, um, obeys God even though it's uncomfortable. Um, and in doing so, is able to bring the gospel to not only Cornelius' household, but, but really to the rest of us here who are not Jewish. These are people, um, there, there are people out there, right? As we look out the window, as we think about the valley that we live in, there are people out there that we would never naturally associate ourselves with who need to hear the gospel. Let me say that again. People who you would never naturally find yourself sitting next to and talking to that need to hear the gospel. There are people out there um, who you would not only nat naturally associate yourself with, but would actually feel uncomfortable associating yourself with, or who would tarnish or harm your reputation if you associated with them, who need to hear the message of salvation. They're out there. Right? This is our community right here. This is our comfort zone. It's great grabbing coffee back there and talking to each other after church. But there are more people out there. It is a lot more uncomfortable out there for the majority of us. But they need to hear the gospel as well. So for us, are, are, are we being called to be a Peter to a Cornelius that's out there? Be thinking, who, who is a Cornelius in your life? Who is that person that God might be calling you to interact with, to associate with, to preach the gospel to, who, in your mind's eye, might be a brick wall, but maybe when you get to them, it, it's an open door. And Peter doesn't know that until he shows up on Cornelius' doorstep. So we're going to take communion, and, and on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after blessing it, he said, This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for many. Drink this in remembrance of me. As we take communion, this is something that we do each week. And it allows us to, to be reminded um, of the man who stepped the furthest out of his heavenly comfort zone to not only associate with, but, but to embrace and die for a people who would despise him. That's Jesus. That's who we come to worship um, as we come to this communion table. And the action of coming down the aisle and receiving communion um, as a believer is a declaration that Christ is your only hope for salvation um, with nothing else attached to it. Not your Bible reading, not your attendance in church, not whatever religious duty or law that you've imposed on yourself in order to get down this aisle and receive communion, but just Jesus at the end of the aisle. I invite you to meditate on these things as you come up. If you've never been here before, what we do is we create two lines down the center, and uh, there will be two people handing out communion here, and then you're going to swing around the sides um, and grab your cup and return back to your seats. We do this in your own time. We're going to have some music uh, playing as well. Um, 
and there will be people in the back. If there's something you want to talk about, I'll be back there too. If you want to ask questions, if you want to pray for me, I could really use some prayer, uh, but I would love to pray for you as well. Um, we'll be back there as well. Um, use this time. This is a very special time for you. Crazy busy week that you just came from and another crazy busy week that you're about to enter. Let this be a protected time between you and God to commune with him as you take communion. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are, are so patient with us, uh, that, that you repeat your teachings to us over and over so that we can understand uh, just how much you love us and how much you desire us. We thank you for people like Peter, um, Lord, who are, are so faithful to you, um, even when they don't get it, Lord. We thank you that we see Peter repenting over and over and over again, Lord. We thank you that he models that for us, um, God, that no matter how many times we don't get it um, or how, how many times we stray away, um, that we can always turn back to you, Father. Um, and, and you're waiting for us and, and you're delighted when we do. God, I pray that you would press in our hearts the people in our lives, or maybe not even directly in our lives, but uh, the people that, that we could reach uh, with the gospel message, Lord. I pray that you'd make us fierce, that you'd make us more than conquerors, God, um, that you'd allow us to, to preach your gospel boldly, um, that you'd give us uh, courage to associate with people uh, that we wouldn't otherwise associate with, Lord. And I pray that we would see them, um, yeah, as, as your beloved children who, who aren't unclean, but but because of the power that you have purchased on the cross, can be made clean just like we have. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.